0: Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today it's my great pleasure to welcome Raheem Fazal to the show. Welcome, Raheem. All right. Thanks for having me here. Raheem is the co founder and CEO of SV Academy. The way to think of SV Academy is that they're an employer driven sales training organization. Uh, we're not going to talk that much about sales training, although we'll probably touch on it. We're going to talk a lot about this sort of topic of how you know we increase diversity, especially in the way that people get hired and, and trained and developed into leadership positions. Before we do that, I got two questions for you, Raheem. The first is, what is your favorite sales book of all time? Probably the most impactful book in recent times
1: has been one called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leaders. And it's written by Jim Detmer and Diana Chapman. For most of my career, in terms of affecting change in an organization, specifically in selling, I've looked at problems externally. So it might be I look at a deal and I look at challenges with that particular deal in more of a removed way. And what this book has really helped me understand is that the starting point is sort of within me and really sort of understanding where I'm coming from in any given moment, you know, whether I'm coming from a place of abundance and love and compassion, and I'm truly sort of detached to outcomes, or am I coming from a place of a lot of fear and scarcity and have a lot of attachment to outcomes. And that ultimately for a lot of my life has sort of permeated in most of my interactions, including in my selling. And I'm finding now, whether it's selling a big deal or it's fundraising or it's hiring a, a senior leader, following some of the steps in this book, starting with really examining yourself and where you're coming from, particularly focusing on this concept of, of detachment from the outcome and sort of allowing the universe to sort of unfold in the way that it does has actually led to higher conversion and better selling
0: opportunity. Like most people, I'm a kind of armchair understanding of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole concept of non-attachment, of course, doesn't mean that you don't care about the outcome or that you don't try to achieve the outcome. It just means that you're not attached to the outcome, which I think is is so important. I was reflecting on you know, times when you've made your quota for a given period and then the incremental deals, lo and behold, turn out to be so much easier than the other ones because because you don't need them and you're able to do the right things and walk away That's right. under circumstances that don't work, actually work in your favor as a salesperson. And if you can now take that approach and apply it to the big
1: deals as well, it's pretty incredible You know what the output can be.
0: Well, let's shift gears over to the second question I'd love to ask, which is uh, the first thing you remember selling either as a kid or a, a young sales professional. So I grew up in Canada
1: and in Canada... Everyone grows up watching hockey and collecting hockey cards. At, at least it was the way when I, when I was growing up there. And so the first thing I remember is having a table at a flea market, which was happening in the summer at an old ice rink, packaging my old hockey cards into brown paper bag, kind of lucky dip type of thing, and then charging people $2 to um, grab a bag and see what they got.
0: I can't help but ask this, and I I'm, it was interested that you didn't mention this, because your LinkedIn profile says it quite prominently, that your self-styled title there includes the words McDonald's crew member. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about when that happened and what that was like?
1: Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up in government housing, low-income family. I was... I was a good student, but always excited about, you know, making money selling, whether it was selling hockey cards at the flea market, or it was, you know, eventually getting my dream job at the time, which was selling fries and burgers at McDonald's. And that was particularly interesting to me because I was able to make more money per hour than selling hockey cards. And also because all the girls in my class uh, went to that McDonald's and I could give them free food. The problem with it was. I wasn't a great employee. And so about six weeks into the job, I ended up getting fired and was quite embarrassed by the whole thing because if you get fired by McDonald's and Ronald McDonald will not give you a reference, it is very hard to get another job in your
0: city. Yeah, I imagine that. You got to just wipe that off your resume.
1: Oh, yeah. It was until I sold the company to Oracle. I didn't talk about that story to a, to a single person. <laughs>
0: I think it's a good kind of that McDonald's background is a good transition into, you know, this topic about elitism and hiring and, and, and hiring and developing mm-hmm. leaders. I know you have a bit of a non-traditional career path. Mm-hmm. What did, you know, what did you experience and, or learn about, about that elitism as you progress through your career? And we can start as early as you want. Um, you know, when you got out of college, for example.
1: Yeah, well, I'll I'll maybe spend a minute just telling you what happened after McDonald's and then tell you, uh, you know, what I've experienced more recently on the topic. So after getting fired from McDonald's, couldn't get a job anywhere else. And so my friend and I uh, were in high school. My friend and I start to do different odd jobs. And we had friends asking us to help build a website for them, do some web hosting, started doing that for free and then realized that there might be a business around it. So we decided that we would, you know outside of school hours, mostly try and build a little business that we had to hide entirely from our parents because there was a very strong immigrant mindset around the only way to achieve sort of, you know, financial security and sort of build a good life for yourself is to follow a very traditional path, which included doing well in high school and then jumping right into a four-year degree. They didn't quite care what four-year degree it was or even what school it was. It was just important that sort of made that jump and you took it seriously. And that didn't seem that appealing at the time being 16. And so started this, this little company, which ultimately took off in junior and senior year of high school. And we sold for a couple million bucks without telling our parents a single thing. Like they did not know about this until the news came out in the paper. And when that happened, I had sort of the confidence and some resources and and a big head, a big ego at the time to say i 'm not going to do it i'm not going to go to uh, to university at the time I said i didn't see any value in it and and decided to
0: keep starting companies. Do you have any regrets over having not earned an undergrad degree, whether it 's experience or knowledge? Yeah, I think th- there are there are a couple of gaps
1: that i've seen as I get older. I mean, my view on the value of a degree has shifted quite a bit since then I, I, I see value because of the gaps that I have. For example, I really rushed through my early to mid-20s. I was working 60, 70-hour, 80-hour weeks from the time I was 16, really, all the way up to recently. And I don't quite remember a lot of what happened at that time. You know, I didn't date that much because... It so 's always focused on selling and building the company and raising money and doing all of those things that that you often do and I also feel like when I look back at my life, a big reason why I am where I am is because i 've had several key people in my life who really believed in me, and part of the way that was manifested was in you know sort of serving as a coach where they challenged me and along the lines of, hey, here's how you should be spending your time. And here are some of the gaps that I'm noticing when I interact with you and having sort of a tight feedback loop with someone who was really in my corner, which changed, by the way, over time, it wasn't always the same person earlier on, it was my parents. And, and then it sort of evolved into other folks every sort of two or three years. But I think there was always someone in my life who was able to play that similar role. Well, this does
0: very much tie to our topic of, you know, elitism in the world of hiring, of leadership and opportunity in general. Where do you see elitism manifesting itself with respect to, you know, being able to find those people who can coach and guide you in your career?
1: Well, let's take it from the from the job seekers point of view to begin with. I think if you don't have ready access, for example, if you didn't grow up with a host of potential mentors coming over to your house, uh, sitting with your family for dinner, or, you know, folks you might meet at the golf course on the weekend, it's hard to even understand where you would start to go and meet someone. And I think it sort of touches on, on, on a very human issue, which is, you know, we like to work with people, we like to sell to people, we like to buy from people that we know. And so how do we sort of break out of these sort of insular sort of first and second degree networks? Because for example, if you zoom out and you think about the topic of recruiting at a greater level, often let's say employers may only recruit at the same 10 schools year after year. But at the same time, as a student or, or a graduate, soon to be, we're finding in research that the school that you will ultimately end up at, or at least the category of school, has been predetermined often much earlier in your life because of socioeconomics and other dimensions. And so a big part of what I think is important is helping employers understand the importance, not just at an emotional level, but really at a results level that diversity results in strong outsized performance and you can sort of think back to some of your your best hires and think back to how you met those individuals what their backgrounds were and we all have those stories about that one person or those two people that sort of you met serendipitously who came from outside of your network But for one reason or another, sort of circumstances align such that you gave them a chance and they end up having sort of this transformative experience, not just for themselves, but also in your organization. Now, how do you multiply that a hundred times, a thousand times, a million times so that you're really affecting systems change?
0: Yeah, I've been reflecting a lot on this because I do notice the unconscious bias either in myself or in, in others. And it makes me think about uh, philharmonic orchestras interview talent behind a screen and they don't see the name, they don't see the gender, they don't see the ethnicity, right? They see none of that. They just hear the music. I love that. And in sales, what, what could you do in whichever role? Probably easier to do with the the more junior roles. But if we know that major predictors, and there's good data science on this, of job performance are, are IQ, conscientiousness, and whatever job skills you have one could interview SDRs as follows, which is you can give them an IQ test, Mm -hmm. right? You don't need to know their name, gender, ethnicity, et cetera, for that. You can give them a conscientiousness test. Those things exist as well to assess people's personality type, and Mm -hmm. they're relatively accurate. And then you can role play with them where it's a phone-based role play. So in theory, you could do the majority of the selection for candidates without knowing any of that information.
1: Yes. Now, one challenge that comes up is just in the implicit biases in which those assessments are designed and then conducted sort of in a repeated way. So for example, if you just take the IQ test, I've recognized a number of employers use several uh, different IQ tests to, to measure COG. I took one recently. And even the way in which questions were worded the language, some of the references, even the very basic design often is done in a way where it pre-selects for certain test takers. And we have to pay attention to that because while I think a lot of these off-the-shelf assessments are good for the 80% solution, when you take a whole bunch of sort of 80% solutions together, so a whole bunch of different assessments or and or a whole bunch of different ways in which interviews are conducted and then conducted in a repeated way, for example, how uniformly are uh, is the whole recruiting process performed, you'll often find that there are, I think, much bigger gaps. And, and I see this directly in the work that we do, because when we have sort of A-B tested from an employer's sort of recruiting workflow versus one that is more personalized for the individual applicant, we've found that we've been able to catch a lot of applicants that otherwise would drop off. And so, you know, maybe part of the way we can solve for this as an industry is also to think about. This is still a very human-driven process. I mean, you can take all the assessments that you want, but ultimately there is a manager and a set of peers often that have influence and ultimate decision-making authority. You know, What are their backgrounds, experiences, hopes, dreams, desires, uh, and therefore biases uh, when they are doing an evaluation of various candidates and trying to even think about the diversity and plurality you can have in just the the human evaluation process could potentially help, uh, solve for some of those gaps in online assessments.
0: Yeah. I I recall the criticism lobbied against that these tests are, are tuned towards social relevancy and are written basically by the majority populations, if you will, and therefore have those implicit biases you mentioned that one of the ways forward is to look at non-traditional signals right things that are beyond yes. school and gpa and internal referrals and so on so what are some of the actionable recommendations you have for leaders in order to you know shatter the elitism that exists in in hiring and and people development Well, I think a couple of things. So
1: first, I think where you source is an important uh, lever. So we are often sort of perpetuating the issue because we source only through internal referrals. It's often fast and sort of seen as low risk, which is why we tend to build the early teams in that way. That said, once the team is established and that core exists, The problem often sort of perpetuates and and people continue to do things in the same way. And so I think a great place to start is when you are building teams or you're doing an overhaul of a team, thinking very consciously about, you know, the trade-offs between sort of your short-term speed and your long-term resiliency. And if you can argue yourself into long-term resiliency or sort of more weighting towards long-term resiliency, then you ought to look in different places. And so that might include different schools. It might include different geographies. It might include even the job boards that we post on. For example, let's see, recently there's one called Jopwell that that I really like. It's largely African-American and Latinx there's great talent there. It attracts a more uh, diverse population. And so looking for um, channels like that, I think is number one. Number two, I think the, the language that we use in describing the opportunity. So if you just take sales development, which is an area that's close to our hearts, sales development itself is in some ways elitist because you have to sort of know someone in the industry in order to understand what the hell it even means. And If you are able to demystify that uh, using language, I think you can sort of open up the funnel to a much broader spectrum of people. I think the the second part to that is also looking at where you have very explicit elitist markers in your experience set requirements. So, for example, a lot of job descriptions for even the SDR position, which is an entry level position, require at least one year of experience, which ultimately shuts a lot of people out, right? Even if, they, if they're interested in sales development, if they don't feel like they have that year, they're not going to apply. So the first two points are just recognizing that like 98% of the elitism happens before you even review a resume. And then I think the third piece is trying to deeply understand what the competencies are. So working with your HR team to really understand what are the competencies that are required to do this job? And this is not what the social signals are, what school you went to, for example, or your GPA. It's more, well, what are the specific activities that need to be conducted? At what level do you need to conduct them on your way into the company to be qualified to do the job? And then you know, various weightings. Um, I kind of think about it as a rubric, like building a rubric which sort of disassociates from traditional signals and looks at the actual competencies that are necessary. And then building your interviewing practices, your the, the interviewing questions, for example, or the scorecards tied back to that set of competencies. And then making sure Uh, That you are reviewing as a team leader or someone who participates in an interviewing process on a regular basis how well a job your recruiting workflow is doing with that goal. And noticing that, hey, it takes some time to fine tune it and get it consistent. But if you're focused on it and you really believe that this is the right way to build your team because you'll get outsized performance, then you'll stay committed to it and make the changes that are necessary to get to the ideal state.
0: That was Raheem Fazal. He is the co-founder and CEO of SV Academy and former McDonald's uh, reject. (laughs) Raheem, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to to find out about you and SV Academy?
1: So the SV Academy website is sv.academy and our Twitter handle is svhq and my personal one is at Raheem the Dream.
0: Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshorn. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.